This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Reports of hate crimes have surged nationwide since the presidential election. But the challenge is knowing if more of these crimes are occurring or if they're just getting more attention. Here's one thing we know. More than half the time, people don't go to police if they think they've been victimized. That's according to a survey by the U.S. Justice Department. A Colorado-based group, the Matthew Shepard Foundation, is trying to understand what's behind this reluctance to report. And Jason Marston is its executive director. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. So among other things, your group works to advance hate crimes legislation, we should say. It was founded by the parents of Matthew Shepard, who was brutally attacked in Wyoming and later died. Many suspected the motivation was Shepard's sexuality. Uh, To this latest project, you set out to find Denverites in particular, who say they've been victims of hate crimes, and then learn why or why not, uh, there was reporting after that. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of someone you heard from who decided not to report an incident. Well, there was an incident a few months back of a gentleman who was uh, engaged in a protest uh, on the street. Um, It was a a Middle Eastern gentleman who identifies as part of the LGBT community uh, who was protesting the president. And um, uh, a vehicle approached and some uh, slurs uh, and an egg uh, were hurled at this fellow. Um, And um, he attempted to report uh, and wasn't able to get uh, past dispatch and was discouraged by the whole experience and never pursued it any further. Okay, so he ran into some sort of barrier Mm -hmm. when he contacted the police. And did he say anything about why he didn't press on? He felt discouraged. Uh, He said he felt embarrassed by the incident, um, that he was um, personally um, just unwilling to engage in the process past that, that first incident. And were you able to dig any further? Well, we've set the survey up to be so anonymous that it's pretty hard for you to actually tell us who you are, even Mm -hmm. if you want to. Uh, Because what we've learned from some of these incidents is that this embarrassment factor of being victimized is uh, profound for people. It, uh, uh, It causes them to feel out of control um, of their circumstances and uh, powerless um, in many cases. It's a surprise to me that there might be embarrassment more than anger, for Mm -hmm. instance. Did that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, it's, um, you know, when working with victims um, in this area of hate crimes, there's a lot of moral outrage that uh, people experience when they're victimized in these types of incidences. It really offends people's sense of justice. And so in the people we work with who come forward to talk to an organization that's dedicated to fighting hate crimes, there's a lot of moral outrage. Uh, and, and part of the uh, process of, of working with them is to try to dial that down and get to the, the strict facts and circumstances of the incident. Okay. So how about someone you heard from who uh, was successful in reporting the incident. Yeah, we heard from a young woman who identifies uh, as lesbian in the northwest suburbs uh, who had some very low-grade continuing disagreement with a neighbor uh, until one day uh, – it's a neighborhood without sidewalks as a lot are in the, in the metro area suburbs. Uh, her neighbor came down the street uh, and stepped on the gas uh, and she had to kind of lunge out of the way uh, to, uh, as she put it, avoid being hit by the car. I want to say that you have received very few responses so far. 
We've uh, over a dozen, uh, which in raw numbers is a small number of incidents. Uh, but in an average year in Colorado, there would be maybe 100 to 110 incidents uh uh, reported, investigated, and ultimately tallied by the FBI. So okay. it's a sizable percentage. Uh, but a sense of the scale there. What did you learn about why she reported what happened to her? She wanted documentation in case something else happens in the future. And this is a common motivator for reporting is, I think this person might do something again. I want there to be a record. And in that particular case, she asked officers to take the report but not to confront the suspect uh, in order to avoid potential retaliation or escalation. So in a way, she reported, but with asterisks. Exactly. And that's a very common circumstance. So here's what we know. According to a national survey that the Justice Department does, this was covering the years 2011 to 2015, about 54 percent of people who say they were victims of hate crimes don't go to police. So, So more than half. And I want to say that that doesn't differ much from overall reporting of other violent crimes. So this isn't exclusive by any means to hate crimes. But it strikes me that one difficulty here is knowing the motivation of the person. So, for instance, uh, that woman who um, was confronted with the neighbor's car Mm -hmm. assumed that it was because of her sexuality. But it's it's hard to know that, right? Right. It's um, – it says – To paraphrase Felix Frankfurter, uh, I don't know the definition, but I know it when I see it. Uh, People feel very strongly uh, when they're victimized that they have a sense of where it's coming from. Sometimes there are epithets or other language used. Sometimes there's a long-running history. Um, In which case it's more clear. Right. Uh, Although establishing that in a court of law, of course, is a different question entirely. Um, And so investigators are often confronted with a situation where they are – probably fairly confident in a lot of cases of what the motivation is. But once you go through a district attorney and charging and trial by peers, uh, it's a different picture entirely. So I understand that you and your partner had an incident. You were living in Wyoming. Right. Uh, and it, it demonstrates the fact that it can be tough to differentiate. What right. happened? Uh, well, uh, a long time ago in a place far away, uh, my husband was the openly gay city councilman in Casper, Wyoming, and I was his partner of many years. And we were the, I think, the go-to gays, so to speak, for the media. Anything that happened related to the LGBT community, we'd end up getting interviewed about it. And one day I came home and our house had been ransacked. Uh, I made sure he was at work where he belonged and nothing, you know, violent had occurred. But uh, when we reported it to police, there was a lot of questioning about, do you think anyone might have done this because of your identity? Um, we found out a long time later that this was part of a wave of break-ins by high school kids that they had no idea who we were, but we lived for weeks wondering if we had been targeted. Mm. And that's how these crimes work on people psychologically. Um, most of these crimes, most hate crimes occur in people's homes. That's the number one place that these are reported. Uh, often, uh, the suspect is someone that they know, as is the case with intimate partner violence or sexual assault. Um, In that case, though, you were not targeted, presumably. We we, presumably we were not. Yeah. uh, But everyone in town wondered for quite a while because it was on the news. The mayor's house got broke into. So fundamentally, I I gather that you are trying to figure out what the obstacles are to reporting hate crimes. 
Um, what we've seen uh, uh, runs the gamut, um, and it, it almost brings a tear to your eye to read some of these things where people say, I honestly don't trust the police, was one response we got. I never thought of reporting it, was one, one response we got. Uh, I didn't think it was criminal, was one uh, response we got from someone who had been subject to harassment to a degree that it might have been a misdemeanor offense. You know, sometimes people think that they've been the victim of a crime when it really was free speech. But in many other cases, people figure that they were just being yelled at and they dismiss it when it might have amounted to a harassment charge. The numbers uh, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction can be squishy here. Mm-hmm. Why Why is that? Why is it so hard to say if these crimes are increasing or if it's simply that reporting is increasing? Why is that all so hazy across the country? Right, because for starters, the majority of victims don't report. Uh, further, many reports are lodged in jurisdictions around the country, but they don't produce a meaningful investigation to the point that the police department would be able to track it. Uh, then about one in six police departments in any given year don't file any statistics with the FBI because reporting to the FBI by department is voluntary. So there's not a centralized system here, you're saying? Now, the best we have is the uniform crime reporting system the FBI runs, uh, and they amount to five, six, seven thousand cases a year. That's a lot of crimes. That's one every 90 minutes. Um, but um, in any given year, major departments all over the country don't report. I mean, Miami hasn't reported a hate crime investigation in 14 years. Um, For a city of that size, you're right. saying that there's some something uh, yeah. amiss there. Denver's smaller and would produce a couple dozen in any given year. You point to Denver, in fact, and, and the police in the city as an example uh, that has done a good job responding to these crimes. What has happened in Denver that you find satisfactory? Well, Denver takes this seriously because... Uh, it's a policing priority from the top down. So if you report a bias-motivated incident in the city county of Denver, there is an established uh, set of detectives who have special training who will review that case. And that case report will go all the way up the chain to Chief White personally. Well, every bias-motivated case goes to the chief's eyes. Uh, and then District Attorney Beth McCann has a team of five uh, assistant DAs who are specialized and well-trained unit to take these cases in and move them from the police through to the prosecution stage. So there's systems set up around it. Chief White is uh, Chief Robert White. Could you address folks who say, listen, if you have two incidents and uh, they both involve someone being, I don't know, hit on the back with a lead pipe or something, and one is motivated by bias, as you say, and one is not, the effect on the victim is the same. Uh, and this is often the argument that says, you know, what is a hate crime versus just a, right. a a regular crime? How do you respond to that? Well, our system of jurisprudence all the way back to um, Great Britain thinks that motive matters. We want to know what the motive for the crime is, not just to help solve who is the perpetrator, but why the perpetrator did it matters in our system. This is the difference between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter. We differentiate these things based on what the offender was trying to accomplish. So uh, we've decided as a society that this particular motivation is depraved and needs special attention. Secondly, these cases get into the media and they cause other people of the same identity group to live in fear 
of a similar offense occurring to them. Uh, as I felt in 1998 when Matthew Shepard was attacked, for the first two days, we didn't know who did it. Was there someone on the loose that was victimizing the LGBT community? We didn't know that. And so the fear is akin to terrorism in terms of how the community responds. Finally, what would you say to someone who is reluctant to report? There's a lot of trauma associated with these crimes, and so people uh, in many cases don't want the extra stress and burden and uncertainty of talking to someone in uniform. I would encourage them to talk to victims' advocates, seek out help from the community, seek out organizations like ours. So th that is seek out an advocate first, and perhaps that person could guide you through the, exactly. the process. Jason, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Jason Marsden leads the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is trying to better understand why people are reluctant to report hate crimes. National surveys by the Justice Department show just over half of victims don't call it in. Now, the forces that make crime rise or fall aren't well understood, but research shows a surprising link between things like car accidents and violent crime. That sort of connection is now the basis of a policing strategy that Denver has used since 2013. But CPR's Ben Marcus reports that the city's top watchdog says they're failing to use this method properly. Police departments love their acronyms. So, of course, this new policing strategy has its own DDAGs, or Data-Driven Approaches to Crime and Traffic Safety. The boring name obscures the somewhat revolutionary nature of the program when used properly. There are some basic guidelines that we don't believe the Denver Police Department are following in implementing this particular program. That's Denver Auditor Tim O'Brien. He and his team found that the department haphazardly rolled out the program four years ago, that they had insufficient documentation, analysis, and training in the system. Some of the basic management pr principles of planning and organizing and supervising and setting goals, setting objectives, monitoring the results, and then making any kind of course changes, if necessary, aren't there. O'Brien says that's led to a lack of buy-in for the system. And that's problematic, says researcher Zoe Thorkeldson. So this is a policing strategy that really has the potential to have a large impact when it's implemented fully and there's strong buy-in at all levels of the department. That's because linking traffic enforcement and violent crimes is counterintuitive, that by simply doing a high-visibility traffic stop at a busy intersection can dampen other crimes in the area. Thorkeldson says it's not that odd a strategy when you consider that criminals often use cars. Right, exactly. So, you know, there's a natural connection between crime um, and, you know, vehicles because, yeah, frequently their criminals are traveling in vehicles or a vehicle is some way related to the crime. Though the Denver police seem less convinced. Deputy Chief David Kinoas defended their limited use of the data-driven policing system at a recent audit hearing. It is not the cure-all for, for how to do policing, and it is not going to be the sole measurement of success for this police department. He says this is just one of their data-based tools. And Kinoas also defended allowing commanders to abandon the so-called DDAC system. The auditor found that the downtown district dropped it last year, even though the high crime and traffic area was a prime location. I cannot mandate to that commander that they have to use DDACs, and that's how I read the initial uh, recommendation that it needs to come from headquarters, that everybody will do it. I think that takes away the autonomy of the districts to, to be responsible for their districts. The department now admits it could improve some aspects of how it handles the data system, in particular training lower-level officers. 
But the auditor says DPD initially took a confrontational approach, rejecting all of the auditor's suggestions. That surprised Denver's auditor, Tim O'Brien. I've been around government auditing, you know, really most of my career. I think I've been in um, audit committee hearings for over 1,200 reports like this. And I've never had an instance where the department disagreed with every recommendation that we made. Not only that, but he says the department's initial responses were curt, one-sentence answers, saying they'd essentially use the system how they wished. I asked Deputy Chief Kinoas about that recently. Don't take that as an obstinate curt response. It's kind of like sending a text message. I think the recipient puts the tone on it. And all, all I can do is, is apologize. Like I said, we, we value the office. You know, we value the input. Whatever the reason for the department's response, the auditor seems undeterred. He says expect a new audit of DBD's entire data-driven policing policy. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Dan Fogelberg will join the Colorado Music Hall of Fame this weekend. Posthumously, he died at age 56 in 2007. Fogelberg had several multi-platinum albums in the 1970s and 80s, and he called Colorado home for much of his life. The leader of the band is dead and his eyes are growing old. But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man I'm just a living legacy To the leader of the band Fogelberg recorded in Netherland, Boulder and Pagosa Springs. And to talk about his career, G. Brown is with me, director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Welcome back to the program. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. Dan Fogelberg was actually born and raised in Peoria, Illinois. How the heck did he end up here? He uh, entered college, studied painting and photography, but when he realized that music was going to be his career, he set out for the West Coast uh, with the help of his friend, Irving Azoff, who became his lifelong manager and arguably the most powerful man in the music business these days. Uh, But uh, Dan got waylaid in Colorado, ran out of money, and uh, it took about a week for Irving to get him money. So the story goes. Uh, And that's when he fell in love with our state. He eventually made it to California, uh, secured a recording contract, and the rest is hysteria, as we like to say. It's hysteria. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So he he makes this uh, unscheduled stop prolonged stop in Colorado, still makes it to the West Coast, but I guess a piece of Colorado uh, was with him enough that he he returns. Exactly. Uh, Did his first album in Nashville, recorded his second album, Souvenirs, with Joe Walsh uh, producing. Part of the plan, the big hit on that album with Joe playing slide guitar. And Joe had Colorado roots at that point. Yes, and in fact, Joe Walsh is being inducted as well into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame this year. With his group Barnstorm. Barnstorm, And also Caribou Ranch, the legendary recording studio where uh, Dan headquartered. But that's jumping ahead. Dan came came through town, played a club called Ebbets Field in the mid-70s with his band Fool's Gold, and he heard about a house for sale up outside of Nederland that was owned by Chris Hillman, who was one of his favorite musicians, having played with the Birds and Flying Burrito Brothers and Manassas. Uh, Dan went up and uh, fell in love with the house and bought it. 
The road to it was nicknamed the Ho Chi Minh Trail because in the winter it was totally unpassable. Uh, he was perched up at over 9,000 feet in the Rockies and Dan had suffered a bout of riding writer's block, uh, to hear him tell it. And that opened the floodgates, just being in solitude, uh, up there. The song spilled out of him and the resulting album was Netherlands. That's right. 1977. And that was his, uh, uh, even bigger breakthrough. Album went platinum and, uh, very informed by his Colorado experience. And certainly this is a play on the name of Netherland, Colorado. From this rocky birch, I'll continue to search for the wind and the snow and the sky. Oh, I want a lover and I want some things, and I want to live in the sun. And I want to do all the things that I never have done. So Talk about this song, his vocals. He's in the upper register there, isn't he? Dan was, uh, I think, underrated in a lot of ways. Um, resetting his legacy has been a lot of fun. Uh, frankly, it reminds me a little of, of John Denver's legacy. They got pigeonholed as soft rockers, if you will. And uh, it kind of has been lost what uh, amazing singers they were and instrumentalists and uh uh, producers in, in the studio. I mean, Dan could play any instrument that he set his mind to, knew how to record them, you know, self-produced his later albums. Uh, just a, an amazing all-around talent. Heck of a guitar player. Uh, a song like As the Raven Flies, uh, that's as tough as a, as a rock track can get. So uh, Yeah, there's a lot of range as I've been listening to more of his stuff, um, which I wasn't necessarily aware of. We'll talk a bit more about that, including his bluegrass Exactly. years in a bit but um is that is the ranch he bought still around you know what happened was that uh after his uh years of mega stardom he identified property over in pagosa springs and uh built a ranch over there on the property eventually built a home studio there because, that's that that is how you uh, record in pagosa springs yeah he got to ski during the day and uh, stay up late at night uh, doing tracks and his last two big albums were uh, recorded uh, over there. And um, if the, the ranch has uh, been sold uh, on his passing. Dan spent his last years in Maine uh, because it was closer to his treatment for his prostate cancer mm -hmm. on the East Coast. So uh, his widow, Jean, a wonderful woman, uh, was able to divest the ranch a couple of years ago. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And ahead of this weekend's induction ceremony for the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, we're speaking with the hall's director, that's G. Brown, about uh, just one of the inductees, that's Dan Fogelberg, who will be inducted posthumously. And as we have said, he has connections to the other inductees, Joe Walsh and Barnstorm, and this place, Caribou Ranch, that recording studio in Netherlands. I'll say that, uh, boy, Elton John, Chicago, Michael Jackson all spent time there. Uh, let's talk a bit about Fogelberg's connection to Caribou and to Walsh and... Um, what role that played in his career? Well, living in Nederland, he was 
right around the corner. Yeah, from right. Caribou. His backyard so was it, Caribou uh, Ranch. Uh, uh, it made a, a lot of difference. Dan was uh, one of the last to come in from that coterie of uh, nationally acclaimed artists like Stephen Stills and Chris Hillman, uh, Richie Fure, people who were uh, migrating to Colorado uh, in the early 70s. Uh, but Caribou, just a legendary facility, the first destination studio, if you will, Ryan, prior to uh, its existence, recording artists were in Los Angeles or New York in the record company's studios in their buildings, punching the clock, doing their tracks and going home. Jim Gersio, the owner of Caribou, was the one who came up with the concept of uh, what if you eliminated all the distractions? You went to a, dare I say, resort-type facility with a world-class recording studio and just concentrate on the work. Uh, you don't have to worry about the laundry or, or ordering out Chinese or any of that <laughs> stuff. You could just uh, just work. It's very much like the Fogelberg story. So he comes here to get rid of the writer's block, to be inspired, and that's a bit what Caribou Ranch was trying to do for other artists, getting them out of the the stinky city and into a more creative place. Okay, let's talk about the bluegrass period. Uh, fans of, of Fogelberg's 70s stuff might forget that, but he was quite successful as a bluegrass artist. Well, I'm running down this mountain pass at midnight. Those truckers, they all flash their lights at me. Well, this highway ain't the very best comeback. I know this somewhere else I'd rather be The moonlight on the snow that sets me thinking About the way your smile shines upon your face And I know this ain't the last beer I'll be drinking Before I reach my final resting place Oh, I wish that I was in your arms to sleep, this is Mountain Pass from Fogelberg's 1985 bluegrass album High Country Snows How did he end up switching genres in the mid-80s? When he was building his ranch in Pagosa Springs, he yeah. was traveling back and forth from Boulder during its construction and playing a lot of bluegrass tapes in his truck. Then he appeared at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in 1984 and got to play with some of his bluegrass idols, uh, such as Herb Peterson, Chris Hillman, and that inspired him to record High Country Snows using those musicians, and it became one of the best-selling bluegrass albums of all time. The album art is so... 1980s in Colorado. He has a patterned sweater and a white turtleneck set against this mountain landscape. It's really lovely. And I think we have that at cprnews.org. Shortly after his bluegrass period, Fogelberg built another home, as you said, and eventually studio in Pagosa Springs. And it is where he made the wild places. His mountain bird studios is what he called it. And uh, again, just him being able to... uh, to breathe. To, to breathe. Yeah. Ski during the day. He loved uh, cross-country skiing and uh, recording at night. He ended up having a, a big hit off that album with a remake of the Cascades 1963 hit, Rhythm of the Rain, uh, went top three on the adult contemporary charts. Thanks for uh, running through his life with us. Always a pleasure, Ryan. We appreciate the support more than you know. G. Brown directs the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, and the hall inducts Dan Fogelberg along with Caribou Ranch and Joe Walsh and Barnstorm with a concert Sunday night at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater in Greenwood Village. Listen to the rhythm of the falling rain Telling me just what a fool I've been 
My next guest dodged the draft. Robert Cooperman did everything he could to avoid fighting and possibly dying in the Vietnam War. Eventually, with the help of a psychiatrist who lied for him, Cooperman was declared mentally unfit. Today, Cooperman is an award-winning poet in Denver, and he shares this part of his life in his new collection, Draft Board Blues. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What made you not want to go to Vietnam? Well, like a lot of kids, I felt that it was a death sentence, number one. Number two, I felt that it was an utterly immoral war. We had no business fighting a tiny country 10,000 miles away. Um, We were lied into the war on a number of levels. Uh, President Johnson claimed that he was going to be a peace candidate. He didn't. He wasn't. And um, like a lot of other kids, uh, I didn't want to lose my life in a war that I thought was a lie. So this was uh, certainly part political, but also just about the fear. Can you take us back to that time and, and like help us understand the, the fear you would have felt and why? Well, let's put it this way. When I received my first my notice to report for a physical, uh, I felt like this was be- the beginning of a death sentence. And a lot of kids felt that way. I, you know, if you were middle class and you didn't want to go, you, if you were terrified, you were against the war, there were ways of getting out. And to call it draft dodging is, I think, a little bit of, of a blanket statement that isn't quite fair. Um, uh, if you were living in another part of the country, in, uh, let's say, in, in a rural area, if you were uh, a minority, you had less resources. And I felt bad for those because I felt terrible for them. And um, But of all the people I knew, only two of us went in, and neither one of them came home. And neither one came home. Neither one. So you have a poem about just this idea. It is called Who Went mm-hmm. and Who Didn't. And right. why don't we have you read that? Who Went and Who Didn't. Let's be honest. If you were a rich and powerful man's son... You didn't have to go in unless you wanted to get away from the blowhard or felt a duty to serve or thought that as a war hero you'd win political office. If you were white, middle class, a city, a suburban boy, there were doctor's notes diagnosing you were afflicted by any number of lethal diseases, shrinks letters lamenting you were a dope fiend, a homosexual, crazier than a birthday balloon, air zooming out of it. There were student deferments, and maybe the war would end before the diploma was rammed into your terrified hand. There were teaching jobs, conscientious conscientious objector status, or, if you were truly desperate, Canada, Sweden, if you brought enough money so you weren't a parasite hippie. But God forbid you were from a small town, a farm, were black or Latino or all of the above, and your family needed the combat pay, or worse, a judge roared, prison or the army. So off you went, like a British convict, transported to the antipodes. You can read the whole poem at cprnews.org. Uh, what category do you think you fit into? Um, I was a middle-class urban kid, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I lived in a neighborhood that was pretty liberal, at least part of it was. 
uh, and we didn't think the war was right. Period. You thought you might have an out because of a childhood injury that yeah. left you with a, a bum hand, uh, but that wasn't uh, actually enough. No, it wasn't. I, it was a terrible injury. I almost died. And if the doctor didn't live right around the corner, I would have died. And uh, I still have stuff in my wrist that's holding everything together in there. And then, no, I have no feeling in, in most of my right hand. And, and you thought that would get you I thought that would be enough, out of yeah. service. Yeah. But eventually your father found a psychiatrist who, yep. who wrote a long letter to get you out of serving. Mm-hmm. What did the letter say? Letter, I'm trying, I, tell, I had terrible nightmares uh, about going in, about being killed, about uh, feelings of, of utter hopelessness. It also uh, stated that I was gay and... Uh, uh, that was enough to get me, you know, at least to see the army psychiatrist. I'm not in the habit of asking guests their sexuality, but you're not gay. No, I'm and, not. And so that no. was that was not no, true but you, in the letter. You, you, you couldn't imagine how many kids claim that when, you know, in those circumstances. I can't have you reading the poem about that chapter. There are a fair number of expletives, but you say that, you know, plainly this letter contained some untruths. Right. Did you have any regrets about... Lying to get out of service? No, I didn't. No, for for a brief moment, about I would say about ten years later, I felt a little bad about it. Why? But, well, because there was so many guys coming home who were, were not coming home. So many guys coming home who were just utterly broken. And I remember talking to a. I was teaching at the University of Georgia at the time, and I was talking to a friend. And I said, you know, I feel I feel kind of bad about that now. And he said, he looked at me and he said, that war was pure evil. Don't feel bad. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Denver poet Robert Cooperman about his new collection, Draft Board Blues. It is about uh, the period uh, when he was a young man uh, in which the Vietnam War was raging and he uh, avoided serving in it for political reasons, for personal reasons, uh, did the letter that the psychiatrist wrote for you get you out of serving for good? What was? Uh, yeah, uh, basically, um, I, I had to see an army psychiatrist afterwards, and uh, there's a poem about that. I don't know if I can even refer to that because the language is pretty salty. Hmm. But uh, at one point, he asked me point blank, "Are you gay?" No, he asked. I'm sorry. He asked me, "Do you sleep with your roommate?" And I said, "No, he's too fat." And that that would that did it, you know. And that was my, on my part. That was stupid inspiration, but it worked. I'd like to have you read "Sitting Shiva with the Rosens." Shiva is a Jewish ritual after someone dies. Mm-hmm. Seven days of mourning. Sitting Shiva with the Rosens. Though I lived on the other side of Brooklyn, it was no secret in my parents' apartment house that I'd have sold my soul to escape Vietnam. Most tenants, even the men who'd served in, the, in World War II and Korea, could care less than they did about Khrushchev's breakfast. Not Mrs. Rosen, whose son Richie volunteered. She was prouder than if he played Carnegie Hall. Whenever I'd visit my parents, she'd shout, There's the coward. There's the traitor. Then the shattering news, a landmine. Richie bled out like a wrung sponge. My mother insisted we sit shiver with the family. Mrs. Rosen won't want me in her apartment, I sighed, but resigned myself to her spitting in my face. Instead, she steered me to a private corner. Whatever it takes, she growled. Canada, 
Sweden, fake being crazy. Richie was enough. Too much. I can't bear another boy dying for those bastards. So Mrs. Rosen at first thought you a coward. Yeah, but it, it, it's very, very, it was terribly sad. It was tragic. It, had, it, it took her son's death for her to come to a different point of view. And he was one of the, the young people you knew who yeah, had died. Yeah, he, he was the first one who went. Yeah. He actually didn't volunteer. He was drafted. I remember dr- driving around with him the night before he, he had to report to Fort Hamilton. And we were just listening to, to music on, in the car. And we drove over to the Jersey side and we're listening to an FM station. And uh, it was like, I kind of felt like he he kind of was rationalizing that he wasn't going to come home even then. He had that awareness. Yeah, he did. Because because death was all around. The news of death was all around. It was. It was terrible. It was, you know, there was, there were riots in the streets. There were, uh, there were peace marches, there was, you know, uh, things were going nuts all over the country. This was, aside from the Civil War, the most divisive period in our history. The word coward appears a lot in this book. Yeah. Um, Were you one? Uh, I felt I was at the time, but I didn't care. You know, as I said in another poem, if I had been called to serve in World War II, um, I would have gone, gladly. You know, I'm I probably would have died in World War II, but that was in a, a totally different kind of war. So in that way, it, it, it is about the injustice of the war, not mm-hmm. the war, not war in and of itself. Oh, no, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what role did you play in anti-war protests? I, I participated in several marches. I had this bizarre, which I write about, experience of going down to the steering committee of one anti-war group and I thought that they were all just blowing smoke in the wind. And if they wanted to get the government's attention, they should do something outrageous. Uh, not necessarily violent, just outrageous. And I was, my idea was insane, actually. It was, it was, uh, it was, we should all throw miniature footballs at the White House with f- f- uh, VC 49 American government zero on it. And I was told point blank that th- that would get us all killed. Oh. <laughs> That's how fraught the time was. Yeah, yeah. The cops would have just unloaded on us. VC, Viet Cong. Is the Viet Cong, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gosh, there is so many poems in this Mm -hmm. that that just typify that time. Why don't we have you read Guys My Age? Okay. It's in many ways a reflection on your interaction today with those who did serve and those who did come home. And I I think this is an important thing to meditate on here. Guys my age, I see them on the street in their wheelchairs, guys my age, their gray hair and ponytails, American flags taped to their rear handles. In summer, their t-shirts might read, I know I'm going to heaven because I serve my time in hell. They're the ones who went to Nam, believing the lies Johnson, then Nixon spewed like volcanic ash. We're not having a choice against the draft's giant lava flow that swept them away on a killing current. They came home in pieces, given wheelchairs. This guy's chair is motorized. It looks like the latest model, almost something you might ride for fun. I've drifted into the crosswalk in my hurry to finish my morning errands, then drive home for lunch. Seeing him, I back up so he won't have to swerve into oncoming traffic. 
As he whirs past, he nods in thanks for my courtesy. I nod back, the least I can do for him, who every day of his life lives the war I dodged. Who every day of his life lives the war I dodged. Uh, Robert Guberman, you have written poems about being a taxi driver, about your family's hat factory. Mm -hmm. Uh, This strikes me as... um, potentially one of the more controversial collections you've released. Are are you prepared for, I I don't know, blowback or something? It's inevitable if it comes. You know, uh, nothing I can do about it. I um, I don't anticipate much, but it might be. I don't know. Do you think that there's um, something about the timing of this book that's powerful? Is there a reason you released it now? Well, in a sense, we're living through... A kind of different age, uh, and, you know, and, but again, we were lied into a very, very nasty war in Iraq. There was no reason to go to that war. Uh, Afghanistan had a one maybe golden opportunity to put an end you know, to the craziness of, of the Taliban, and it was blown. And so... Um, and then you hear all these stories about these poor guys who come home with PTSD, with, with who were lost their legs, and and I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration and awe for them, uh, you know, to, uh, to put themselves in harm's way like that. Who volunteered? I was in a in in a war that was basically a draft war. Um, you know, the, uh, the number of draftees who were injured or killed uh, was, was almost out of all proportion to the total number of guys who went in. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Denver poet Robert Cooperman. His new collection is called Draft Board Blues. He's a past winner of the Colorado Book Award. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A mistake can shape the rest of your life, for better or for worse. That's what NPR's series Total Failure is about. Jeff Brumfield has the story of a professional climber from Boulder whose misstep came high up in the mountains of Myanmar. Emily Harrington had to make a choice. We were on this ridge at about 18,100 feet, and it just dropped off on both sides, like 4,000 feet. Harrington is a professional climber. She was trying to reach the top of the tallest peak in Southeast Asia. That had only been climbed once before. She could see the summit from the narrow ridge, but one of the more experienced climbers warned her the final route to the top was going to be tricky. The climbing from here is going to be more technical, more dangerous. It's going to be harder than anything that we've done up until this point. Was she really up for the final push? Or was it time to climb down? Emily had spent her whole life fighting failure. As a kid in Boulder, Colorado, she was always trying to beat her two boy cousins. I just grew up in this atmosphere of of competitiveness. And when she discovered she was better than them at climbing, she stuck with it. She started visiting a climbing gym, an artificial wall climbers used to practice. The gym had a junior team that competed against other junior teams from other gyms. And that led to her first competitive climb against a girl named Zoe. And she beat me by a long shot. Like, I mean, she just crushed me. 
But I remember that like fueled my fire. I was like, okay, next year I'm going to come back and I'm going to do better. And so I just sort of like worked my way up. Emily started winning local, national, international. My dream was to be world champion, was to compete on the World Cup circuit and do really well. And that was that was all I did. That was my perspective on what climbing was. She became a five-time U.S. champion. She won second in the world. But competitive climbing is an unforgiving sport. Unlike climbing a natural rock face, there's only one path up. And with the slightest slip of the fingers or a moment's hesitation, Emily found herself a loser. When that happened... I'd get super dark. Just like, I'm never going to be good. I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to do what I want to do. I suck. In 2008, Emily was feeling burned out when she got an extraordinary opportunity. The gear company North Face offered her a spot on their team of professional climbers. All of a sudden, her horizon expanded from the indoor wall to rock faces all over the world. She spent a few years learning the ropes, and then she was invited on an expedition to Mount Everest. I agreed, and I went on the trip, and I it was super hard. It took two and a half months. Getting to the top wasn't just about climbing skills. She had to stay healthy. The weather had to stay clear. There was all these factors that worked in my favor, and in a way, there was a lot of luck involved. But I summited. I did the. I completed it, and I went home, and I was like, "All right, cool. Well, that was amazing. I should do. I should do more of this." She kept climbing big mountains and summiting, and then Emily was approached by a fellow climber named Hilary O'Neill to embark on an expedition that was something completely different, a journey to a towering peak in Southeast Asia, a little-known mountain called Kakabo Razi. And so her idea was to start in the capital city of, of Myanmar, which is uh, used to be called Rangoon, now it's called Yangon and travel overland as far as we could up north to get to this mountain. That sound is from a documentary about the trip called Down to Nothing. From the capital, they set out by bus, then boat, then a jarring overnight train journey. Which was the most horrible experience of my life. They got off the train and took motorcycles 80 miles into the jungle. And then we got off the motorcycles when the trails got too rugged and we walked for 125 miles. It took over two months just to get to the bottom of the mountain. By the time they were ready to start climbing, they were low on food, and there wasn't a trail up. There was a lot of wrong turns. There was a lot of backtracking. There was a lot of, like, intense decision-making. Ten days of climbing, and they finally made it to that ridge, which led to the summit. A lot of the things that I did today I've never done before. Perched. There on a ridge as narrow as a knife's edge, exhausted, cold, scared. For most of her life, she'd judge success or failure by whether she made it to the top. She was so close, she could see it. But if she went on, she might not make it down. And I decided that uh, I just, it wasn't, wasn't for me. It wasn't, it wasn't my time to keep climbing. She turned around. And giving up, it may have been the best thing she ever did. Not just because she didn't fall to her death. High up on that ridge, she really understood that life wasn't so simple. There were wrong turns, bad weather, bad luck, things she couldn't control. And it was okay to give up. In the end, even the more experienced climbers had to turn back around to go down with her. We all failed. Um, I mean, but I, I didn't take it as a bad thing. Uh, we tried. We did our best. <laughs> In that moment on the mountain, Emily finally let go of something. 
something she carried with her through all those years of competition. I think it just taught me that I can't control everything that's going to happen to me in my life. And I'm going to have to just take it as it comes and just deal with it and and be okay. Uh, success or failure, it's 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 going to be okay. <laughs> Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Jeff's story first aired on All Things Considered in June, part of NPR's series Total Failure. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.